Computing at the edge is only really starting to come into fashion now, but Tyler McMullen has known the merits of working at the edge for a long time. As the CTO of Fastly, he's been advocating for the edge and helping companies like the New York Times and others realize that through Fastly and edge computing, you can create a whole new and better experience for your users. He explains all of that and so much more, including his unexpected love of raccoons, on this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, Tyler, what's going on? Hey, not too much. How you doing? Good. We are going to be talking today about the edge. We're going to be talking about what you're doing at Fastly and a little bit about your career. So first, how did you get into technology? I think I got into technology roughly the same way I think a lot of uh, a lot of kids in the 80s and 90s did, which was I got, uh, you know, as a nine, 10 year old, uh, I was pretty obsessed with my, with my Nintendo, obviously. And so <laughs> basically it's video games that got me into it back then. And of course, it, I think it's funny that I never actually did get into, you know, any sort of like, you know, uh, actually writing games professionally or anything like that. But just the realization that I could, that one anyway, could, uh, take a computer and make it into something that was, you know, actual entertainment was, uh, was pretty exciting to me. And so obviously that's, that's what I really wanted to do when I was 11, 10 years old. Do you have a favorite game? <laughs> Final Fantasy one for the Nintendo entertainment system. <laughs> I was always a huge Zelda fan. It's just such an incredible game, but my favorite was the, uh, trying to beat like those kind of early games with like the incorrect swords and things like that. And you're just like, stabbing something like a hundred thousand times because you uh, don't have the magic sword. Well, yeah. So amusingly, like the thing, and like, I, I didn't expect us to get into this today, but like the thing that actually got me into it was um, someone got me a game genie for Christmas one year. I eventually I had the realization that what the game genie was actually doing was modifying memory locations within like the game. And like the realization that like, Oh, like it's just, it's just memory. It's just, addresses within like this linear space, it just kind of clicked for me. And I was like, Oh, wow, this is not this is not as complicated as you know, it seems like it would be it's not as magical as it seems like it should be. That is quite literally the most succinct explanation of a game <laughs> game genie that I've ever heard. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, so we I think I think our listeners know, you know, from an early age, uh, how you were thinking about uh, systems with, with that insight. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so flash forward to today. What is Fastly? What are you all working on? And uh, and then we'll get into the scope of your role as CTO. Sure. Um, so what Fastly is, is an edge cloud provider. Um, we, we provide a platform for developers and, um, and operations folks to both deliver content and also write programs that run at the edge. To some extent, that looks like a content delivery network. Uh, other times, it ends up looking a lot like a uh, an image optimization service or a web application firewall. Uh, so basically, just anything that can be done at the edge are things that we want to do. Typically, what are some of those kind of use cases? Well, yeah, like like I was so like I was saying, like you know, there a lot of what we're doing these days are 
both optimization and also security features. So image optimization is, I think, like one of the easy and obvious ones um, where uh, folks want to be able to just have a single copy of an image that they hold on their systems and um, manipulate it at the edge and modify it and optimize it to uh, fit whatever device or um, whatever, like, for instance, like bandwidth whatever uh, connection users have. Uh, so that can look like, you know, downsampling it. It can look like, you know, face detection and zooming in on faces or whatever else. And like the whole idea here is that it, it lets people optimize things um, at the edge without having to worry about doing those sorts of things um, in an inefficient fashion back at their origin servers. And on the security side of things, um, one of the things that we think is, is actually like one of the best uses of the edge are things like uh, web application firewalls for instance, because typically like the way these have been done in the past is that you would have your, you might have your CDN and then you would have your, uh, your WAF somewhere else. Right. And so the traffic would have to be routed through multiple different locations, which might not be anywhere near each other um, before they end up getting back to your origin. Right. And so the whole idea is that at the edge, we, we've realized that we can take a lot of these different use cases um, and, and put them right there in one place. And so for a media company, for example, what is the business benefit here? Are we talking seconds, fractions of seconds in load times? Like, what are we looking at? Well, it really depends on the specific use case. But um, yeah, we, we've certainly seen cases where, you know, it's, it's you know, anywhere from, from like a large fraction of a second up to like several seconds um, in some cases. Studies have made it clear over the years that even, even fractions of a second can make a big difference in, um, in how much your users actually stick around on your site. So for example, you know, one of your customers being New York Times, you know, on, uh, I think it was like election night, you have, you know, millions of people potentially going to the site and, uh, you know, obviously shocking, shocking the system, so to speak. Do you all help with figuring out how to load faster, load more correctly, all of that? Yeah, I mean, of course, that's that's just kind of the bread and butter of this whole thing, right? Like, so for the, the user's benefit is that like the the website is faster from the, the customer's perspective, they get that benefit, but they also get the benefit of, of the fact that we're relieving uh, a tremendous amount of load off of their, off of their servers. Right. So in many cases we can see hit rates up to like 98, 99%. Um, and if you think about it, like that means that 99 out of a hundred requests would not be hitting your origin server. So if you had a hundred origin servers in principle, anyway, you could actually reduce that down to one. Obviously, like, you know, you, you wouldn't actually reduce it by 99x. But like, but the point is that like, there's actually multiple different benefits here, right? Benefits for the users is also benefits for your bottom line. So what about your role as CTO? Are you overseeing product development and that type of roadmap? Are you working internally? Do you work on, you know, employee experience as well? What's kind of the scope? Oh, man. So the... <laughs> the role of CTO in a company that has grown as quickly and you know just as quickly as fastly has over the last nearly nine years now actually is is kind of a fascinating one because it ends up starting as like you know a like the the primary engineer on the system and then very quickly grows into a management role and then changes in scope multiple different times right so I feel like I've had you know eight different jobs over the past nine years but at the moment what I do is I focus a lot on future facing um, projects and products. So, uh, for instance, you, you may, uh, your listeners may be familiar with, uh, some of the open source projects we've put out lately. Um, so like Lucid is one of those that's a server side, uh, web assembly compiler and runtime. So yeah, my, my team focuses a lot on like standards and open source projects and like really long-term future facing ideas. 
which is a joy for me, to be honest. I, I really enjoy this particular part of the job. Yeah. I wanted to talk about those open source projects. Why do you do this? Why do we do them? That's a great question. <laughs> so there's a few different reasons why we do them. Um, one of them is is just to give back to the community, right? Like so much of what Fastly is built on is open source. Like we are primarily an open source company, right? Like uh, from the very beginning, we were using uh, the Varnish server software. We obviously like contributed back in multiple different ways to that community. But really like when we're doing things internally, I almost consider it like a like a bit of a loss if it's just used by us, right? Like if we're doing something that's so great, like this is something that if we want to build a community, especially given that like developers are our primary users, right? Like we want to build a community around that, like open sourcing as much as we can without, you know, you know, without giving away the, without giving away too much, of course, is like, is, is incredibly important to us. That's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is that, like, you know, when we put something out there in the open, if if other people get a hold of it and start using it and start contributing back, that also benefits us, and that that makes a big difference to us as well. I think the the Lucid project that I mentioned a little bit ago already has you know contributors from Mozilla and and, and various other companies, um, and so that's that's already been great for us. Yeah. So we recently had an interview with Mozilla talking about a bunch of the kind of the open source initiatives, obviously that they do, which is extremely extensive. How does that fit into like the framework of like your team working within the team product development? Um, you know, is it something that you do? Like, do you assemble a, a team around that and just, you know, that's their only kind of role or is it kind of cross pollinated with other, other like product creation efforts? Yeah, for us, it tends to be pretty cross-pollinated. Um, you know, given, again, like our origins, a lot of the the founders' origins as open source developers, um, we think it'd be kind of silly for us to just have like an open source team and then everybody else, right? We would much prefer to, if we can anyway, get like the entire engineering team behind some of those efforts. So switching gears to kind of the state of the edge, uh, for lack of a better term, to borrow a phrase, where do you kind of feel like the industry has come in the past, you know, eight plus years? And then kind of where do you think it's going? You know, when we first got out there, you know, eight, eight, eight plus years ago, um, the edge was really, for the most part, just viewed as like, that's the place where content delivery networks are, right? And that's the, that's really about it. Like the entire concept of like, you could do more at the edge was like very, kind of unknown, in my opinion. Like there were lot. there's lots, there's been lots of talking like, academia for years and years. And like, there's been a few industry efforts in the past as well, but it hadn't really gotten much like uptake in my opinion. That seems to have changed quite a bit over the last eight years. Like if you look back to like the, you know, even, even our early features that were quite a bit different than like the traditional CDN. Um, I think, you know, a, a great example of this is like the whole concept of instant purging. Right. Um, and a lot of times like we would talk to people and they wouldn't get why that was useful. And so we spent a lot of time kind of trying to explain that the edge could be for more than just delivering basic static content. It was for more than just images and videos, which I guess to be clear, like the whole idea behind instant purging was the realization that if you have content that is what we refer to as event-based. So this is content that changes in the reaction in reaction to users taking an action that can actually be cached quite effectively. Right. And so like, you know, that whole concept comes from uh, from an Archer our CEO was uh, was actually the CTO of Wikia back in the day, and he he uh, was attempt to figure out a way to cache the entirety of a wiki, cache like all the content that was written. And what was interesting about that is that like most wikis are actually static, 
like the vast majority of the time. And then of course, you know, a new TV show comes out and like suddenly there's 10,000 edits in an hour. Right. And so all the rest of the time that wiki page can be cached. And then like, really you just, if you have a way that you can say, Hey, this is, this has changed. You can have a like incredible, like uh, incredible story that reducing the uh, amount of work that your origins are doing and making it so much faster for users. Right. So the, so that was basically the reason why we developed our instant purging system. And then, you know, over the years we've seen the industry kind of catch up with that where they thought it wasn't useful to start with. Now they're going like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We have instant purging as well, which, which is great, but it is like an interesting it is an interesting uh, shift in how we have started thinking about the edge over the last eight or nine years. And that's just kind of like the tip of the iceberg of examples. And do you feel like, you know, as this continues, obviously, you know, folks who are creating massive amounts of content are going to remain at the cutting edge of this because, you know, it's their business. But for a lot of other folks who don't have those things, who just, you know, rely on the cloud or, or whichever. Do you think that that group of people, that like middle class, for lack of a better term, is going to start seeing this be more prevalent or not see it more importantly, um, but see the benefit from it? I, I certainly think that people who have like, who create or deliver like massive amounts of content will, will always have a use case at the edge. Like that seems clear. I actually think the, the, the primary users are going to start becoming not just that, uh, but rather user or um, sorry, customers who have uh, users spread around the world or ha- who have low latency requirements, right? I think that over time, this is going to be much less about like the massive amounts of content, much more about the user experience and being able to make that as fast and as pleasant as possible. It seems like you have a pretty clear culture fastly, you know, obviously around developers, um, but you call yourself a technology curmudgeon. Why is that so? <laughs> to be clear, like this is a bit tongue in cheek, um, but like I yeah, call myself, totally. <laughs> right. I call myself that mostly because I feel like I've, you know, over the last, oh God, what, 25, 26 years at this point, I, I feel like I've worked with a ton of different types of technology and nothing is ever perfect, right? Like as much as I want to love every individual piece of technology, there's nothing where I'm like, this is this is the perfect little thing. Like, you know, when you work with anything for long enough, all you, you, you end up in this place where it's, it's hard to see it for anything, but like the little things that irritate you every day. And so at this point, it's really just a, it's almost just a joke in my head where I'm just like, yep, I'll work with whatever technology. It's fine. It's all flawed in, in its own individual ways. And I think, uh, I think that same line in my bio also mentions that I hate distributed systems. This is also ironic because I actually, like distributed systems are like, you know, my, my bread and butter. This is, this is what I love to do. I love to work on complex distributed systems problems. However, I will say that they are the most difficult types of systems to debug and in some cases to build as well. Um, and that's why I hate distributed systems, just because you can build something that seems perfect and gets deployed and works perfectly 99.9999% of the time. And then that there's that one little that one little case that you could never predict, <laughs> it just makes it very difficult, but also, you know, rather rewarding as well when you get things to work well. It's a love-hate relationship. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Why do you love raccoons so much? <laughs> so, okay. This goes back to when I was significantly younger and I was, uh, I was one, of those, one of those kids who spent a lot, of, uh, a lot of nights skateboarding through the city. And so oftentimes it would just be me and me and the raccoons out on the street at night. And uh, so I developed kind of a, kind of a love for raccoons. I felt like a certain, um, certainly communion with them. You know, I'm, I'm kind of with you here. 
And I also am a fan of raccoons, funny enough. Nice. First of all, they're dressed like bandits. So that's oh, great. I mean, amazing. who can resist? Yeah, who can resist that? Second, they wash their food, which I feel like is hilarious and funny to watch. Oh, I didn't even know that one. Yeah. They, yeah, they, they, that's why they, like, if you ever see someone who has like a pet raccoon, like these videos, and they'll come home and they're like, what are you doing there? And then they look down, the, per, the raccoon's like washing their keys in the dog bowl. Uh, <laughs> like, wait, no. Yeah, no, I feel like they're, they're misunderstood. And I also feel like, you know, it's funny to see them in the wild now, right? You're like so used to seeing them in like cities and things like that, that, uh, you know, in the wild, I feel like they're, you know, they're different. Also, I, I heard that they attack, but who knows? Um, I've never seen it. I, I, uh, speaking of seeing them in the wild, I also really enjoyed that, uh, that David Attenborough special, uh, in which they were featured. I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but yeah, it was showing raccoons in the wild versus raccoons in the city. It was fantastic. <laughs> Switching gears. So tell me about, you talked a little bit about it, but the, the bite code Alliance, um, with Mozilla Intel Red Hat, uh, like what, what is this kind of thing and why were you so excited about it? Yeah. So the Bytecode Alliance is, is, is kind of, it's, so it's a thing I've been working on for the past six months. Um, I am pretty excited about it. Kind of codifying a relationship that's already, you know, kind of been extant over the past several years. Um, so as I mentioned, like Fastly open source Lucid and obviously our new computed edge is built on that. What's not obvious is that Lucid is built on top of CraneLift, which is a Mozilla project that like we've been collaborating with them on for the past several years. So the whole idea of CraneLift is that it's a, uh, well, I'm going to get I'm going to get a little technical for a bit now, but it's a so it's a code generator, um, which you maybe remember from like you know compiler classes back in the day. Uh, that's just one of the phases of a compiler. So this is the thing that is generating the actual machine code that happens as part of the compilation process. So CraneLift is the thing that does that. It's the thing that's uh, that's going to be built into Firefox soon. And so it's also the thing that Lucid is using, and thus is you know running uh, Computed Edge for Fastly. Likewise. Intel and Red Hat are involved. They have they have their own um, their their own ideas for the future of WebAssembly as well. Um, I know that you know we're working on various things like optimization of uh, of WebAssembly code as well as like secure enclaves for WebAssembly. But yeah, so the the whole idea behind the Bytecode Alliance is that we realize that so many of these use cases actually have like common infrastructure, and in order for us to build a like a really solid WebAssembly ecosystem. One of the things we need is like secure and highly efficient foundations for this entire thing. And no one company, in our opinion, is, you know, really capable of kind of encompassing all of the different use cases for this. And, uh, and like, nor does any one company like have all the different pieces of expertise that we need for this. So like Fastly is coming at this from an, an edge computing viewpoint and Red Hat's coming at it from like a secure enclaves viewpoint and Mozilla's coming at it from a browser viewpoint, right? So our, our whole goal here is to be able to foster this community around WebAssembly that is not just about, it's not just about the web. It's not just about browsers and interaction with JavaScript, but the future that we like that we envision for this is so much bigger. And, you know, I, I've talked about this in a few talks recently, but like, but to me, like the the thing that is kind of magical about WebAssembly is that it's the first time we seem to have agreed upon an intermediate representation, which is both safe and performant and like multi-platform and multi-language capable. Like the closest we ever got in the past was the JVM, which and like no one seemed particularly happy about that one. But like 
you know, I'm particularly happy about WebAssembly and it seems like a lot of other people are as well. And so like we're in this, we have this opportunity right now where we can make, we can finally like make a, we can make almost a single platform that we can, that developers can target and be able to take your code and run it across so many different things. Like imagine being able to write one program that can run across from in a browser to on your server to uh, at the edge to on a you know embedded device um, across all these different processors, right? And so that's that's the thing that's super exciting to me about it. Like it's the only it's really like the only opportunity in like the the history of computing that we've ever really like that we've ever had to do this. And so I think if we can like if we can nail this one, like it can make a huge difference in what in the way that people are working and the way that people are deploying and running code um, in just a few years. So what what type of like you know work and effort goes into something like this? Because I know this is something that when we talk to a lot of CIOs and CTOs, and we've talked to a few folks who have created similar things. You know, obviously, if you just go to you know bytecodealliance dot org, and we'll link it up in the show notes here. You can check out there's mission and values. You know, there's kind of the the initial starting of this. But I'm curious, like, how does this kind of fit into your thoughts about being a CTO? Like, why is this type of thing important um, to leverage kind of your role and the the unique expertise that you have at Fastly? So I, I think this fits into the role of a certain type of CTO. Like the, the type of CTO that that I try to be is one that is focused on like the community as well as like very long-term projects. And I think that this one, this particular type of project fits into that so well, right? It's, it's a big bet, right? It's the type of thing that makes a difference, not just within our company, but actually like across the entire like computing community, if we can, if we can do it right. Right. So when we put together something like this, the way that I'm thinking about it is, okay, sure. What short-term benefits can we get out of this? Like the, the Lucid project actually started as just a way for us to figure out how to make running code on our edges safe, right? That was, the, that was our primary goal, right? But as we started working on that project, I think, and I think this is one of the things that CTOs need to be doing, we had this realization that like, oh, this could actually be a lot bigger than that. It could be a lot bigger than just being able to run some code on on our edges. Like we could actually make it so the user experience of this is 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 amazing, right? So so deploying things to Fastly's Edge becomes just like deploying things to your own hardware or just like deploying things to the web for that matter, right? So to me, like part of the role of at least, at least the way that I see what it means to be a CTO is, is looking at like what the future of this technology actually looks like and how we can both assist the future and also drive what the future of technology looks like. And yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of my viewpoint on that one. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I'm so fascinated by this is because I think part of the role of a technology leader is to, you know, build communities around technology to build kind of like IRL uh, experiences. And you see a lot of the companies who do a great job on that have this connection to the individual people to create, you know, streamlined processes or make things easier. But it usually just isn't a one company thing. Like your technology alone or your company alone doesn't really do it. And I think for a lot of technology leaders, they're not necessarily, especially if you're, if you're a, uh, if you're, in a non-technology company, if you're like the CIO over non-technology company, figuring out how to be integrated in things like this is pretty difficult potentially. So how do you, you know, 
as you're going and looking at partners as as people are you know want to engage with the alliance the bicode alliance like how do you look at integrating people into that sharing what it's about with other developers and other technology leaders yeah um so that's actually something that we're that we're working out right now um the response to our announcement has been kind of overwhelming. Um, I didn't expect us to get so many requests to join so quickly, um, though it's very exciting, of course. Uh, but now, yeah, we're having to go through the process of figuring out what exactly what exactly we are looking for in new folks who want to join the alliance. Um, fundamentally, though, like it's it it is an open source community, right? So so like we welcome contributions from anyone uh, who who is interested in working on these types of products and types of ideas. What it really comes down to is that like we're we're trying to build this platform, right? You know, obviously Fastly is working on its own platform, but like fundamentally also the Bytecode Alliance is working on a platform as well, kind of like the underlying platform to that platform, if that makes sense. And so really what we're looking for are are folks who will be able to contribute toward different use cases or different pla- or like different um you know, hardware and software platforms for that to run on top of, right? So we're basically trying to just expand what the what the thing that we are working on can actually do, ultimately. Switching gears a little bit towards, you know, safety and trust and security, do you see kind of any dangers or, or you know, threats of untrusted code in the cloud or, you know, some of these open source projects that, that you all are working on? Yeah, of course. I mean, really, like that's that's kind of the whole point of this of this thing, right? So there's lots of different ways that people go about like taking untrusted code and making it safe to run on on their own platforms, on their own on their own hardware or software. You know, obviously we have like you know we have VM like we have VMs, you know, whether that's Zen hypervisors or VMware or whatever else for that matter. Um, then you have containers, um, which have you know, and VMs and containers have had their own problems with uh, with you know safety breakouts over the years. Um, and then of course, like we, we can go from there. We like look at, you know, process level isolation, which actually is very similar to containers. And then you get all the way down to things like WebAssembly. And so these are all kind of different ways of accomplishing the same goal, right? Which is to take that untrusted code and make it trustable, right? In one way or another. A lot of the ways that we have done it in the past, kind of as a community, um, have been like their system level, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, they're kind of system level, higher level, like it, Security imposed upon a program from above is kind of the way that I look at it. Um, I think that WebAssembly is interesting because of the fact that the safety guarantees end up built into the program rather than imposed on the program. Um, Mm, Interesting. Right. So like one of the fundamental things that's interesting about WebAssembly is that um, like the concepts of memory safety, right? So like the ability for you to say like, yes, this program will not attempt to read or write outside of the memory area that I have allowed. Um, it's kind of built into the specification of the language, right? And so assuming that you have a correct implementation of that, you know, you, you can make certain guarantees, right? You know, obviously Spectre throws a little bit of a wrench into this. And so we've had to go, uh, we've had to do quite quite a bit of like work in order to make what we are working on uh, safe in that respect as well. And so there's a, there's a bunch of different things that need to be done to make things both safe in like a systemic level, um, which is what you know we've been doing for years and years at this point, but also safe from uh, side channel attacks as well. Um, and so ultimately, like you know whether it's VMs or containers or even separate machines, really, like there there's risks in all of these things, and we think that especially with the amount of work that we in Intel and Red Hat and 
you know, Google and Mozilla and everybody are putting into this thing, we do believe that we'll be able to get it to a place where like, where it is safe across all of these different types of attacks. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. You can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more about the amazing digital transformation platform that is Salesforce Customer 360 platform. Lightning round questions. Tyler, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? I have the worst answer. It's Instagram. I spend way too much time looking at Instagram. I don't know if it's fun, but it's what I spend a lot of time doing. Ah, that's kind of depressing, actually. (laughs) How about favorite podcast or book that you've listened to or read recently? Well, as much as I do enjoy IT IT visionaries, I think my favorite podcast right now is uh, is Potterless, which is a Harry Potter podcast. Can I give an alternate answer to that? Because now, now that I say that out loud, I'm kind of embarrassed. <laughs> oh, no. It's all, I mean, I, I run a podcasting company and one of my favorites is the Harry Potter podcast too. Have you ever listened to Binge Mode? Oh, I haven't. Oh, my goodness. It is phenomenal. It's one of, it's, it's like ridiculous deep dive into, so they do, uh, they did Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, and then now Star Wars. So highly recommend it. What's your favorite either one day getaway or vacation spot? Uh, my favorite one day getaway spot is probably Palm Springs, uh, in Southern California. It's a easy flight from San Francisco and you can suddenly be in warm weather kind of regardless of what time of year it is. It's lovely. Sometimes a little too warm of weather. Oh <laughs> it's yeah. It's like yeah. 120. You know, if you're by a pool, it's not so bad. <laughs> what is your thing? One thing that you're most excited about for the future of technology? I got to say WebAssembly. I spent so much time working on uh, WebAssembly based things lately that like, you know, and and kind of the surprising thing is that even after doing that, I am still excited about it. So I I guess I can't really call myself a technology curmudgeon regarding WebAssembly at this point. What do you do for fun? Okay. So right now I am in the middle of reading uh, the Discworld series. Uh, So I do a lot of reading for fun, which if you're not familiar with the Discworld series, it's a roughly 40 book series uh, based on a flat planet. (laughs) And so, yeah, that, that has currently been my fun thing. I'm like eight books into the 40 book series. What is your favorite real or fictional raccoon? It's a raccoon in uh Oh God. What was the Disney movie? Oh, Pocahontas. There's a raccoon. Oh, I wasn't Pocahontas. going by Pocahontas, but that's a great one. <laughs> that's a great one. I was thinking of, uh, oh God, Alice in Wonderland. I think it was actually a cat, but it kind of reminded me of a raccoon. I have no good answer to this question, clearly. <laughs> so I'm going to go with a real one, and it's going to be the albino raccoon that used to live behind my old condo, which shout out to that raccoon because she's great and she always had a bunch of little raccoon babies. And uh, she was albino, just living her best life. That's amazing. I didn't even know that was a thing. I yeah, guess in, in sunny case, Oakland, yeah, California. Do, all right. In that case, I do have to give a shout out to my local raccoons. There's a family of raccoons that lives on the, the same block with me. Um, and I regularly see them walking down the street and think, oh, that's a cute dog. Oh, no. That's a family <laughs> of raccoons. Oh, man. Easily the best way to get sidetracked on your morning walk or on a podcast. Um, all right. <laughs> let's final lightning round question. Oh, two more, actually. Maybe three more. What would be your best advice for a first-time CTO? My best advice for a first-time CTO would be to be flexible. The job is going to change. It's going to look extremely different one week, one month, one year later. And be ready to you know, work on things and do things that you didn't expect. 
right? Uh, so yeah, be flexible. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I don't think anyone's ever asked me what uh, what my first computer and or like language was back in the day. Ooh, what was, yeah, what was your first computer and or language? <laughs> yeah, so my first computer was a... Uh, well, there's depending on how you look at it, it was either a Commodore 64 that I found somewhere, or it was a, uh, a 286 that I got at a yard sale for, I believe, $10. First language was actually uh, was QBasic, quickly followed by, strangely enough, Lisp. That's crazy. The funny thing, the Commodore is a very popular, like how I got started in, in technology question. So I think you're in good hands there. Oh, fair enough. Tyler, this has been awesome. Uh, we love the tech talk. We love the raccoon talk. I mean, I think <laughs> we all can uh, be more like raccoons by, do you know that they can remember the solution to tasks for almost three years, says uh, some Wikipedia article on them. Wow. Yeah. Much like much like uh, the common uh, CTO who can remember similar tasks for up to three years. This has been awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much. Uh, any, uh, any final thoughts, any things to plug? Uh, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, but also I, I just got to say, I, I don't think I've ever been on a podcast where the host was this knowledgeable about raccoons. So I, I really do appreciate the <laughs> raccoon talk as well. Yeah. You walked into That's the dojo. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.